Aloha. I love it. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 13 through 20 today. That's Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. For those of you who fasted and prayed for me, I want to say thank you. For those of you who didn't, it's going to be your fault. Our sermon is entitled, What Matters to God? So when Pastor asked me to plan on preaching this month, he gave me the option of staying in our verse-by-verse expository series in Matthew or doing a standalone sermon. And I chose the standalone because I had a topic that was in my mind for quite some time, something that I thought would be a blessing to the church. Some 13 years ago, I had preached a topical sermon at a number of churches sharing how God had called me and my family to plant a church in Santa Rosa, California. The title of that sermon was, Church Matters to God. Would you agree? And the passage of scripture that I preached was found from today's text, in particular verses 17 and 18. However, as I delved into that particular sermon, I realized that I had glossed over so many topics that are really important in the life of a church and the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, I expanded the sermon a lot. Get comfortable, because we might be here for a while. Just kidding. Not. But before I get started, I want to thank all of you. I want to say mahalo to my dear church family for all of you for walking with us and praying for us and supporting us through our, our family's adventure with our son Noah. For those of you who don't know the story, Noah is currently incarcerated in the Williamson County Jail. He's charged with a felony that we know that he committed, and he has freely admitted to it. How he landed in jail began approximately three weeks prior. But in all reality, if the science is correct has roots from when he was first conceived. Bobby and I firmly believe that Noah is not a felon. Noah has a mental illness, one that can be treated so that he can live a normal life. Noah has now been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Some of you may know someone with schizophrenia, a friend, a family member. If you do, my heart and my prayers are with you. A simple definition of schizophrenia would be a disorder that affects a person's ability to think, feel, and behave clearly. Schizophrenia is characterized by thoughts or experiences that seem out of touch with reality, disorganized speech and behavior, uh, decreased participation in daily activities. Someone having a a schizophrenic episode will often have difficulty with concentration and the ability to do the simplest things like eat and sleep and work. While we don't know the exact cause of schizophrenia, science has shown that a combination of genetics, environment, and altered brain chemistry and structure can play a role. Did I say genetics? Well, both of Noah's biological parents are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Pray for them, too. 
Bobby and I were, born, were, were warned when we adopted him, or before we adopted him, that he was susceptible to having schizophrenia. We were even told that if it did happen, it would probably show up between the ages of 20 and 30 years old. Well, Noah turned 24 on June 6th. His grandparents had called him to wish a happy birthday. And after talking to him, they called Bobby immediately with the question, what is going on with Noah? When Bobby explained his behavior swings and our fears, his Grammy informed us that his dad was 24 when he was first diagnosed. So in the space of that three weeks before Noah was incarcerated, we watched him go from a a punctual and uh, what we were told was a hardworking employee who he owned his own car, he was renting a room from two other Christians to someone that thought he was chosen by God to be a prophet of the church and the world. In his last week prior to his arrest, he walked away from his job. He told us that he had been fired because he was asked to choose between God and work. Then he caused an accident while driving what witnesses said was between 80 to 100 miles down North Bell in Cedar Park. He T-boned someone, and both vehicles were totaled. And I firmly believe that it's only by the grace of God that he and the other driver walked away without injury. And then that same night, he was arrested for felony burglary. Church, I'm giving you the short story. There are many more incidents that happened that I'm leaving out in order to get to the word in today's sermon. I mean, in one way, it warms my heart that Noah had been paying attention to all of the preaching I did in our house and in the churches that I served. In those three weeks, Noah was reading his Bible literally 22 to 24 hours a day. That's what he was telling us. He wasn't sleeping for three weeks, and we know that's a recipe for disaster. Noah would call me two or three times a day or call his mom, and and he'd have these questions about Scripture. And in the beginning, I have to say that I, I was, I had that feeling of elation that, that he was in the Word. Wouldn't any confessing Christian parent be? It was when his calls turned from asking me questions to informing me what God was calling him to do and what he was calling him to be that I knew that we were in trouble. What breaks my heart is how he was able to quote scripture that I had shared with him throughout his lifetime And then he applied it to himself like he was the next John the Baptist. Could God use Noah to be a prophet? Well, God is God. He can do anything. We know that. But if God was calling Noah to be a prophet, wouldn't what Noah was prophesying line up with God's word? I know that there was nothing that Bobby or I or Pastor Matthew or any of you could do to reason with Noah and stop his slide into darkness, but how do we prevent those without mental illness from misinterpreting the Bible? My prologue point is what matters to God is not only that we read the Bible, 
but that we read it correctly. Amen? History is replete with supposed Christian leaders and followers who read the Word of God and misinterpreted it in a way that proved sinful, out of line with God's will, hurt the church, hurt others. From the time of the Crusades when Christians sought to wipe Islam off of the face of the earth to the likes of Jim Jones, do you remember that name, in Guyana? And David Koresh, you probably remember that, the Branch Davidians and what happened in Waco. Just to name a few examples. We read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A proper reading and rendering of the word of God will prove that God never intended Christians to wield that word like it was a sword, slashing at the world and others and causing injury, sometimes murder, wherever they went. What I believe he meant was for us to use that sword like a surgeon's scalpel to cut away the cancer of sin, to bring healing and restoration to the world. How does a Christian correctly handle the word of truth? Well, I say biblical hermeneutics helps. Biblical hermeneutics is the study of the principles and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. When you're following biblical hermeneutics, it means that passages must be interpreted historically, grammatically, and contextually. Many of you have heard me repeat the line of one of my favorite Bible apologists, Greg Kokel, who says, never read a Bible verse. What? Never read a Bible verse. It's too easy to read a Bible verse and not see context. And reading a Bible verse without context is risking the text being able to con you. Kokel says instead, always read a paragraph at least. Pages before and pages after won't hurt. Biblical hermeneutics helps to avoid wrong interpretation of the Bible, the wrong interpretation of who God is, the wrong interpretation of who is Jesus and what he came to do. The pastor who discipled me early in my Christian walk had me memorize this verse, and I'm hoping that you'll read it aloud with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The Apostle Paul is saying that it's not enough that we only read our Bibles. As we delve into our scripture reading for today, we will see how important it is to follow a biblical hermeneutic in order to read it correctly, in order to rightly handle the word of truth. So follow along as I read for our scripture reading for today, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, blessed are you. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. So verse by verse, we're about to go. Let's start with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So utilizing our biblical hermeneutic, in order to understand from today's text what matters to God, I think we need to conduct a little geography lesson. Prior to where we find Jesus and the disciples in our reading today, Jesus has been doing ministry in the east and the northeast area of the Sea of Galilee, feeding the 4,000, attracting huge crowds. He's in the last year of his ministry. Things are happening here, and he's about to go to Jerusalem. He knows he has that destination, and that's about 80 miles walking distance to the south. About the distance from Austin to San Antonio, I looked that up. But instead of heading south to Jerusalem, Jesus takes his disciples north. Verse 13 of our scripture reading today says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. If we look at the map, we see that Caesarea Philippi is about 40 miles walking distance to the north of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. So why would Jesus take his disciples 40 minutes, 40 miles in the opposite direction of his intended destination? That's like Pastor Matthew telling Michelle that he's leaving for a conference in San Antonio and then heading to Gerald. Do you think that there was something about Caesarea Philippi that Jesus wanted to point out in the lesson he was about to teach them? You see, that's context. What do we know about Caesarea Philippi? Well, history tells us that Caesarea Philippi was Gentile territory. Remember how the Jews didn't like to go where the Samaritans were? This would have been the same thing. You didn't catch Jews up in that area. Most Jews would have avoided this area at all costs because it was a pagan city. Located at the mount, or the foot of Mount Hermon. And at the center of Caesarea Philippi was a, a pagan temple chiseled into the rock of a cliff. The name Caesarea Philippi is obviously Roman. But before Caesar Augustus bequeathed the land to King Herod, who built the temple and left the area to his son Philip 
hence the name. The area was controlled by the Greeks who dedicated the area to their god, Pan. So it wasn't just that they were worshiping Roman gods and goddesses. They were worshiping multiple idols. The area was then called Panea, later to be modernized to Banias by the Syrian Muslims who controlled the area before the Roman takeover and didn't have a P in their language. At the base of the cliff, just to the left of the temple was a cave where a spring gushed forth that became the Banias River. The Banias River is one of three sources of the River Jordan to this day, although the river's course was altered later by an earthquake and the water now flows from a source to the left of a cave opening. It was this particular cave opening that Pan worshippers said served as a gate to the underworld. Pan worshippers, because Pan was supposedly half man and half goat, would offer their goat sacrifices there. Baal worshippers believed that Baal would use the entrance of the cave as a portal to Hades, where it was thought that he would reside during the winter. Another name of Baal is Beelzebub, which means God of the underworld. Baal worshippers came to offer human baby sacrifices in this place to entice Baal to return to his followers each spring and to bless the planting of the crops. In other words, this cave represented the gates of Hades. Listen to how the psalmist described Baal worshipers in Psalm 106, 30 and 37 and 38. He says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. We don't have to look so far to see people who so value their own comfort and their own convenience that they sacrifice their sons and daughters, do we? It is here that Jesus asks his disciples who the people of the world say that he is. Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, whenever I'm attempting to proclaim the gospel, share the gospel with someone, there comes a point where I need to ask that person that I'm witnessing to, to answer a question. I, I need to ask them, who do you believe this person Jesus is? Sometimes they'll tell me, oh, he's a myth. But there is more attestation to the reality of Jesus, that he was a real historical figure, than any other man of that time. Not just biblical sources, but extra, extra biblical sources. So if you believe in, in Caesar, in Julius Caesar, or Augustus Caesar, or uh, name any historical figure, if you believe in them, then you've got to believe in the historicity of Jesus. Historians like Josephus and Tacitus, political figures like Pliny the Younger, and historical documents such as the Babylonian Talmud all point to the reality that Jesus 
is real. That he did live on this earth. Those in our scripture reading today knew that Jesus was real. But who was he? The answers reveal a common thread. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets meant that people thought that he was a reincarnation of a mere man. But Jesus asked in verse 15, But who do you say that I am? That's the question that we must all answer. To which, in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the promised Savior of the world. And you are God. What a great confession of true faith. Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's camp out here for just a moment. Jesus addresses Peter by his, his Hebrew name, Shimon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon in Hebrew means to, to hear, to listen. But even more than that, to listen and obey. Friends, how confused are, are people about Jesus Christ today? Who do they say is this person called genius, Jesus? Yes, some people say that he's a myth. Some people say that his father was a Roman centurion who raped his mother Mary. Some say that he was just a Jewish rabbi just a mere human, a teacher of the law like Moses. Some say that he was a great moral teacher on, poor with, on par uh, with Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, others. You know, as, I've, as I have attempted to share the gospel of Christ with others, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it would be a whole lot easier to win souls if God would only just make sure that they got that question right. Who is Jesus? According to verse 17, who was it that revealed the true identity of Jesus to Peter? The Father. And friends, therein lies the truth. Knowing who Jesus really is takes divine revelation. It is God who reveals the truth about Jesus to those he has called to be saved. Jesus echoes this thought in, in John 6 and 65 when he says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Why did you become a Christian? Do you believe that it was because you were smarter than others? More intelligent? Shame on you if you think that. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, It is for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
If you truly know Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, it is because God the Father graciously chose to illuminate the truth to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so what matters to God? The church matters to God. I mean, let me point out that when Jesus utters the word church in verse 18, this is the first time that we see that word in the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus will utter the word again in Matthew chapter 18, and we'll have a little bit more to say about that later. But the point is, is that church is God's idea. It's not man's idea. Now, we need to understand that when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not talking about a building. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. The prefix ek means from or out of. And the word, the root word is kaleo, which means to call. So etymologically speaking, a church is an assembly of people who are called out of the world and into a common fellowship. As Christians, you and I have been called out from this world that is ruled by sin and ruled by Satan, and we've been assembled by God to be His people. That is ecclesia. That is church. How cool is that? And before we move forward, I just want to take note that in the New Testament, the word church is really used in two different ways. First, it describes the the true Catholic Church. Now, by saying Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. That word means universal. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, tells us the church is the community of all true believers for all time. The term, the church, is used to apply to all those who Christ died to redeem, all those who are saved by the death of Christ. So the true universal church is not bound by time. A disciple of Christ from the time of Jesus is a member of the same church as a disciple of Christ today. The church is not bound by nationality. It knows no color barriers. Christianity is not a white construct, no matter what the woke people of today's world believe. It's not bound by language. A believer in China or any other country is in the same and true universal church as a believer in the United States. And then there's a second and much different connotation to the word church in the Bible. The word ecclesia also refers to the local church. The epistles, the letters, were not addressed to the universal church. They were written to specific local churches, such as the church at Rome or the church at Ephesus. Although their application is universal. The fact of the matter is that all of the local churches seen in the New Testament were a a product of geography rather than a product of denomination. Whether we are talking about the universal church or the local expression of the church, 
I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Sound like a church to you? So how has this verse been misinterpreted? Well, this is a big one. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the first pope. I know this firsthand because I was Roman Catholic for the first 40 years of my life. And they rest their case on verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The first Vatican Council in 1870 wrote this. Therefore, if anyone says that blessed Peter the Apostle was not appointed by Christ the Lord as prince of all the apostles and visible head of the whole church militant, or that it was a primacy of honor only and not one of true and proper jurisdiction, that he directly and immediately received from Christ Jesus our Lord himself, let him, let that person be anathema. Let him be cursed. Millions of Roman Catholics and others who don't claim to be Roman Catholic but have heard the teaching of Catholicism, even today believe that the true church of Jesus Christ must be built on the apostolic foundation of Peter being the first pope. But is that what this verse says? This is what where knowing the, the grammatical construction of this verse in the original Greek plays great importance. Jesus calls Simon Peter. In Greek, the word is Petros. And Petros means rock. A single rock. Like a rock that you pick up. The ancient Greek poet Homer in his book, The Iliad, writes of soldiers who were picking up Petros, picking up rocks to to throw at the enemy. But when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, the word for rock here in the original Greek is a different word. It's the word petrus. It's not just a single rock. It's what John Piper says is a bedrock, a rock face, the side of a mountain, a cliff or a ledge. The point of Jesus, the, the point is Jesus was not calling Peter the rock on which he would build his church. Jesus did not say, On you, Peter, I will build my church. He said, On this Petra, on this solid bedrock foundation, I will build my church. And so the the Petrine papacy, as it's called, it's a fallacy. What is the Petrus? What is that solid foundational bedrock that Jesus is referring to? In context, I would say it's Simon Peter's confession of faith. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says, The stone that the builders rejected, 
has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock, a petrus of offense. What is the stone of stumbling? What is the rock of offense? Wrong question. Romans 9.33 Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock, a petrus of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's not what the rock of offense is. It's who is the rock of offense. Jesus. Tell the wrong person that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, and you will become a rock of offense to that person unless God opens their heart, unless God reveals the truth, just like he revealed it to Simon Peter, just like he revealed it to me. And I pray that he's revealed it all to you. The end of verse 18 says, On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, we should just get this out of the way, that that is better translated as Hades. It's not the place of eternal damnation. It's just the, the place of the dead. Shall not prevail against it. What do we know about the gates of the city in those days? Well, gates in, in biblical Israel weren't just a doorway into a city. They were where the prophets cried out and the kings judged, where deals were negotiated and sealed in the, in the presence of witnesses. When the two angels traveled to, to Sodom in Genesis 19, they found Lot in the city gate. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? The city of gate was where Boaz sealed the deal to redeem the land that Naomi owned and by doing so legally gained the, the hand of Ruth in marriage. Proverbs 31 says that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In biblical times then the gates of the city are where you found those who wielded authority and we would be wise to remember that as the church, we would be, we've been given authority, haven't we? But we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so here we find another often misinterpreted verse in the Bible. What are the keys to the kingdom? And more importantly, what is this binding and loosing stuff? Well, first let's acknowledge what keys do. Keys open doors or gates, or they close doors in a way that makes it so that no one can enter. We've already established that in the days that Jesus was walking the earth, Cities that were well fortified had walls, and those walls had gates that were opened and closed, unlocked and locked. Jesus says that he is giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And a right interpretation of this verse is that the, the keys of the kingdom will, 
will bind or close or, or loose or open the gates to that kingdom. How do we know this? Well, listen to what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and 13. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, church, where is the kingdom of heaven? It's here. It's right here on earth. That's what Jesus taught. In the context of our scripture reading today, the keys of the kingdom are are Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If we know what Jesus, who Jesus is, right, we're unlocking that door to the kingdom of heaven. Those who think Jesus is only some idol or some myth, don't get in. It's with that confession that he will unlock the doors to the church, and invite the brother or sister in Christ into the fellowship. And if they cannot make this confession, he will lock the doors. He will bind the gates. You see this in action in Acts chapter 2, and I'll let you read that later on. And later in Acts 10, when Peter proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles. But wait, there's more. Because the Greek in this verse is better translated into English in the New American Standard Bible, which reads, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You see the difference? Who does the binding and the loosing first? Heaven. What our God in heaven declares shall be bound or loosed, closed or open on this earth. Our job is to be Simons, to listen and obey. When we loosen or open the gates to the kingdom of heaven, we are opening the gates to that person who God has already called, already elected. You see this, church? It's not us that are wielding these keys. It's God, and He should get all the glory. There are Christians who declare that Satan can be bound in the name of Jesus. This verse has nothing to do with Satan. If it did, then we should all pray right now that Satan would be bound. How much easier would our lives be? Jesus had an encounter with Satan in Matthew 4. And he didn't pray to bind Satan. And if this verse is what if this is what that verse really means, who in their right mind would pray that Satan be loosed? Were these keys meant for Peter only? I think the scripture says no. In Matthew 18, Jesus instructs the disciples, not just Peter, on how to confront a a brother in sin in order to bring him to repentance and restoration. And he says in verse 18, 
Truly I say to you, he's talking to the disciples, he's not talking to just Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that those who hold to the same confession of faith as Peter in our scripture reading today, hold the keys to open or close the doors of the church. So if you've got that brother in sin and you go to confront him and he realizes his sin and he repents and he's restored, you've opened the gate for him to be back into fellowship. And if he doesn't repent, then you close the gate. That's what Matthew 18 is saying, 1 Corinthians 5. We are a body of believers called out of this world and assembled together, built on the foundational truths of the apostles and the prophets that all point to the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone, that Jesus is the bedrock, the foundation, the husband of his bride, the church. Amen? Now, how do we confront the gates of Hades? The Bible says that we, the church, because of our great confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior, have been given authority to confront the authority that hides behind the gates of Hades. This is the authority that Jesus gave to us in the Great Commission. He says, and and Jesus came and, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, he's transferring that authority to us, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to listen and obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, we proclaim the gospel to people heading for Hades, an eventual eternal damnation, so that by the foolishness of our preaching, God will save them. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The famous pastor and evangelist Charles Spurgeon put it this way, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Church, are you using your authority? Are you proclaiming the gospel to those who are bound for hell? Verse 20, and we get to wrap this up soon. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would Jesus laud Peter for confessing that Jesus was the Christ and then tell disciples to tell no one? Well, I believe that the hermeneutic of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture gives us two reasons. 
First, it was not the time for this truth to be revealed. In order for Jesus to fulfill all of the prophecies, he must suffer and die in Jerusalem. Jesus says as much in in verse 21, which you all can read on your own since it is not part of the scripture reading for today. Trying to save you a little time. Jesus tells the disciples in John 7, 6 through 8 that his time has not yet come. But there's a second reason. I believe that the disciples did not fully comprehend what this great confession meant for them. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit had not been given to them yet. That's why they were cowering after Jesus' death, hiding in the upper room, afraid to go out. Jesus had not come back. He had not said what he said in Acts 1.8 when he instructed his disciples, but you will receive power with the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It was not until the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost that they became empowered to proclaim the good news that Jesus came to save sinners and that the gospel is calling everyone to repent and believe. That's the same power that we have today. That's the same power that Jesus has imbued on us, that promised Holy Spirit, that promised power that would help us to do the things of God and to do the Great Commission. Church, I believe there are two sets of people here today. If you're a member of God's church, if you're saved by God from your sins and you're elected to walk in the righteousness of Christ, let me ask you, are you using the keys of the kingdom to tell others the truth that will set them free and allow them to enter in the kingdom as fellow heirs? As, As disciples of Christ, are we using the authority given to us by our Lord and Savior to prevail against the gates of Hades. Because, friend, holding those keys and not proclaiming the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission is the same thing as burying your talent in the sand. God will hold you accountable. Or maybe you're the other set. Maybe you've never heard or never understood the gospel, the good news that starts with the bad news that we are all sinners, each and every one of us, and that we're totally incapable of saving ourselves from the penalty of sin. Because unlike every other false religion in the world that says that there is something that you can do to appease God, Christianity says you can't do anything. There's not enough good works that you can do. But that's where the good news comes in. Because the good news is that Jesus came to this earth, fully God, fully human, as prophesied, and lived the perfect sinless life so that he could be sacrificed for our sins, the perfect sacrificial lamb. 
Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine so that your fine, my fine, could be paid in full. Our account would be settled and we could be set free to live a new life as a new child of God. If this is you, my friend, call out to Jesus. Confess that Jesus is not just a myth, that he's not just a legend, a liar, or a lunatic. Confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior, that he is the Son of God, and repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus so that he will fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit to walk as Jesus did. If you have any questions on any of this, talk to me or or pastor or somebody here before you leave today because honestly, you may not have another chance. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?